week's Marvelous Pod, in which we will be talking about Werewolf by Night, a Disney holiday special. That holiday, presumably being Halloween. It doesn't call itself a Halloween special, but, you know, tis the season. And um, Disney venturing further into horror and opening up more doors into the rest of the Marvel comic universe. Me I am delighted. What? Into what? <laughs> what? <laughs> You just said Mordor's, and you have to say it. Mordor's, is that... that... Mordor. Do I? All right. Well, you've added that for me. Good. Well, as you can tell, (laughs) I've been joined by Matthew, who's already introduced himself as Mordor, and we will stick with that. Hi. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also... Uh, Laura, hello. Hello. I am Laura. I know. I just like to find more ways to just really not cue you in. (laughs) Other people come prepared with hosting, and I think that being an anti-host makes sense. No, really I, I love the chaos energy, and again, I've <laughs> got a drink. Well, I hope you are ready for what is about to come as we delve into Werewolf by Night, on which I am sure we will all have our usual highly consistent opinions. Laura, what did you think of Werewolf <laughs> by Night? Um, I thought it was enjoyable. It's a fun, spooky watch. Really likes the um, the style. And the score, particularly, which you would expect with that director, uh, Michael Giacchino. Um, lots to like, not blown away by it, though. Don't think I probably would have rewatched it again if it weren't for the pod. Um, I've heard some a number of people actually say that it's both too long and too short. And I kind of understand what they mean in that it seems a bit too thin for the length we got, particularly with a lot of the character development. Um, I just felt there could be a bit more there. But... As ever, we all say we want to see Marvel try new things, and I think this is very much a new thing, and I'm delighted to see it. Excellent. Matthew, what did you think? Very similar. I'm not sure I would even have watched it the first time um, if we weren't (laughs) doing it for the podcast, because it seemed like it was going to be, oh, fine, one of those, you know, streaming service, Mm. direct-to-streaming service movies. Okay. And then it came and went, Mm. and that was fine. Excellent. So you mm. found it completely fine. What did you think? Well, fortunately, for the length of this pod, I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And it is my <laughs> second favourite Marvel offering to date. Uh-huh. And um, it made me think that I don't I don't know when the last time we did a Marvel top 10 for each of us is. But this is definitely second only to Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which wow. the listeners will know is my favourite. So, so what, above yeah. Captain America, the Winter Soldier? I mean, astonishingly, (laughs) even above Civil War, Laura, if you can believe it, a film I've only just remembered the title of. (laughs) Is this where we get you to tell us what's happened in Civil War? (laughs) No, not at this time. Not at this time. No, this time I have content. I can remember this. I watched it twice and I'm already planning my next watch of it. I so deeply enjoyed this on a broad variety of levels. I was really delighted. So, hurrah. But nobody hated it. No, no. So that's good. No, it was utterly inoffensive. (laughs) It's almost damning with faint praise there. (laughs) Completely vanilla. Oh, okay. We're not quite on the same page then. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe Matthew's just kind of slightly towards the... Yeah, further along the spectrum there. All right. Okay, well, there are plenty of articles and things out there which point out all of the different bits and pieces that this borrows and pieces together from different horror films, different bits of genre. Did anyone spot anything that they were particularly entertained by? Any kind of stylistic choices? Any references that they were delighted by? 
Well, it's a deep cut. I'm not sure if you noticed, but it was in black and white. That's true. That's true. It was. Now you yeah. mention it. In yeah. black and white. It was. And we have... <laughs> have we had other black and white things? Was one of what ifs in black and yeah. white? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely been has a black been... and white thing, Abby. Has there been something? Hang on, Laura. Stop. <laughs> Abby, tell us about black and white things in Marvel. Is this a serious question? <laughs> yes. Is there seriously something black and white in Marvel that, that we've reviewed on this podcast? Yes. Is it WandaVision? Yes. Okay, that's fine. It's the very first thing. <laughs> and what happened in WandaVision? But that's different because um, it's, it's like, it's, no. I mean, I know what happened in WandaVision, but that is slightly different because it's like literally doing that thing. Whereas this is not literally a 1940s a piece of cinema. Right. This, is, yeah. this is not pretending to be set in 1943 or 1966 or whenever. You know. Yeah. Also, there was a bit of Thor, Love and Thunder, that was in black and white. When they went yeah. to the Shadow Realm, that was black and white, wasn't it? Hey, yeah. Mm. Sort of. Sort of was. Sort of. Mm. Yeah, so um, going into broader things, because mm. obviously now we've identified the colour. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really like the way they really leaned into this Hammer Horror style, and it's actually made me think I really actually would like to watch some Hammer Horror, because I've only ever seen clips and things. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to become my favourite thing, but just I think it would be interesting to see... Um, and, you know, the tailored Marvel um, logo. What, what do we call that thing at the beginning that we've now seen far too many times? I don't, thank you. Uh, I thought that worked really well. I like the maze design. And um, did you see the little cigarette um, burn symbols? No. Top right corner? I didn't. So there's, I think they're sort of, oh, I don't know if they're circular or oval, but little white oval. marks, mm-hmm. oval, yeah. Um, where, obviously, put on there. As, as a affectation, given they um, filmed on digital, but that was the indication for changing reels uh, in the old films. So if people want to go and check again, and Matthew, obviously in your next watch, um, it's at the 16 and the 31 minute mark, apparently. Very nice. I didn't check that bit myself. Uh, in fact, I was actually a bit disappointed when we went into colour at the end, but I enjoyed it being tied into the Summer of the Rainbow. I liked that, but when they actually... I think partly because of the things I'm like, oh, that's the wrong colour. Because <laughs> uh, I rather loved Elsa's um, jacket. Mm. and uh, But I had it in my head as like a sort of a tan, buttery leather. And then uh, red, I thought, no, no, this is not right. <laughs> uh, yeah. That is, I, when I watched it the second time, I thought, I wonder how many people thought it was a red jacket. So mm. I'm, I'm interested that you didn't. I love that it was Technicolor and kind of mm. colourised rather yeah. than a sort of now we just kind of take the filters off sort of yeah. effect. And the way it, it sort of bled mm. out into the uh, into the scene. Mm. I thought that was very nicely done. And I like the kind of bits with the, with the bloodstone and being, you know, that, mm. I think that can be a bit... The, the Sin City stuff. Mm. Well, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I think it can be a bit cheesy, but I thought it was so... Mm. It, it wasn't very much, so it was but okay. Also, I think cheesy kind of works with what what we're working with here, it's hmm. I, I didn't fit. And it, it lends weight and power to the thing that's meant to have weight and power. Yeah, hmm. I think if that had just been in the monochrome, because it, it would just have been a lump, wouldn't it? So <laughs> yeah, here yeah, is this yeah. rock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you, Abby? What was your... Uh, uh, my favourite thing about it was the fact that it has um, references of the Ennis house, which is the house that's for me, most famously in in Blade Runner, but it's also in lots and lots of horror films. Like it's the setting for House on Haunted Hill, mm. um, which if you 
haven't seen the 1959 one. I really like that. Um, Is it the eponymous house? Yes. Oh. Yeah, and it's you know that house in LA that is mm. well, it was I think it was sold recently, the Frank Lloyd Wright one, which has the sort of tiles, and then in this they so they had the tiles as the doors, the kind of great doors that come out mm. of the hall, and they mm. sort of make a big feature of it because they look good in black and white, um, and I thought that was just a nice little detail for a location that it's obviously not this house is not this location, but I like the mm. idea that it is in some way sort of emblematic of that. I thought that was a nice. Yeah. Design classic nod, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I also really like, I mean, I I love the big house stories. I love that this is leaning into the big house. Um, I really like the way that the sort of, the set wasn't much to speak of. Like, they obviously did not spend a great deal of money on corridors and shrubbery and that sort of thing. It was, but I always felt there was a big sense of place, like you are entrapped in this place until the game is complete, and then mm. you kind of get you get sort of smaller entrapment into the sort of the vaults and the spherical cell and so on. I just I really like the use of space in this. Um, we mm. were talking about um, films that feel like plays, and I felt this would be a lovely play. Um, mm. it, it works for me in just that sort of way. Lots of intense mm-hmm. bits, and I think. You know, the way that this was made felt a lot like the way that the way that people used to make horror films. You know, there was more of an emphasis on on character and connection and motivation and a lot less of the kind of this is a really scary thing that's really jump scare and scary. It was it was kind of working with horror rather than just trying to show you it, hmm. I thought. So I think that's that's another reason I liked it so much is it does so many of those things that older horror films do that I like. Like, it understood what those films are about, not just what they look like yeah. for me. Anything for you, Matthew? I feel like you might have seen more of the genre than, than perhaps Laura and I have. For, from a, a horror perspective, it, it, it has got a lot leaning in. I mean, we're talking on the colour, the lighting it felt very classic because it was so stark in many, many places, which mm. was an absolute delight. I, I love when shadows are used well. Mm. We watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and they do some of that stuff. It's sort of projection projection of shadows. Um, so you can sort of give the hint of something going on without actually showing that thing. It like lets you get away with werewolf. the senses a bit better. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but actually I've got two just pop culture tie-ins to, to bring in um, from my own sphere. Harriet Sansom Harris as Verossa Bloodstone um, who is Fraser Crane's agent <laughs> and turns up once a season in Fraser and is absolutely delightful. We love it every time she turns up because she plays a big bombastic character mm. and I was quite pleased because there was a hint that she wasn't going to be major in this. I was quite pleased when she kept coming back and doing yeah. stuff and getting to not just be sort of grieving and sorrowful uh, she actually had a lot of personality, which is good, and suits the the casting there very well. Without it, I don't think that's that's not like a um, you know Kate Blanchett, Charlize Theron stunt casting. She's the right person for that sort of role, and it really worked. For oh me. yeah, because mm. as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, it's her. But to be honest, I couldn't have told you the actress's name until I looked right, her up. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I had to look up. Right, what you are so familiar, what do I know you from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to be honest, I don't really know what it was because there were just so many things that she's mm. been in. That you're like, oh, well, okay, that's... I loved her in this. I thought she was so mm. evil. Mm. Uh, uh, just delicious evil. Uh, she She's the Eves in the X-Files, which is a very small part in one episode, but very mm. memorable as, as a key thing. Mm. Mm. 
think that's maybe the thing. She's just incredibly memorable in, in yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've also talked in the past about how there's not many Star Trek actors that end up in Marvel, <laughs> and we finally have one of the greatest deep cuts from Star Trek being brought over with Kirk Thatcher mm-hmm. as as the older hunter. Um, uh, he was called Joven. Joven, mm. who was in Star Trek Four as Punk on Bus, mm-hmm. who famously gets the Vulcan nerve pinch and gets knocked out. He's then in, I'm going to say Independence Day, but I feel like it might be a Spider-Man film. It's a Spider-Man film, isn't it? Homecoming. One of the new ones, yeah. Um, where he's in that. And then he's in a recent episode of Star Trek as well, mm-hmm. where um, he, he repeats his role as Punk on Bus, although I think it was Punk on Street. But, yeah. you know, the bus is implied. Picard. Um, but it is it is delightful to have him him rocking up and stuff. I think he was st- not stunts, but sets or props or something, and he just got put in the role because he had kind of the look for it. Um, and now and now he gets to do all these random cameos and places. I have no idea why he's here. It's delightful. It's also yeah. interesting when you look him up that he's done a lot of directing of Muppets. Oh, it's him, isn't it? Mm. Yes, he went and did that. Yeah, so I bet he was props or something. Yeah. Mm. Mm. While we're so talking, the, it, while we're talk, sorry, while we're talking about the cast, I did not have great hopes for the Doctor's alumni with this one. However, <gasps> who do we have? We have Richard Dixon, um, who played Ulysses Bloodstone. So I'm guessing uh. the voice, given it didn't seem well, it was an animated <laughs> corpse, but not. <laughs> but yeah, could have been so, the mask. <laughs> I was, um, I was hoping for Laura Donnelly that you know we might have something there. But uh, she has not graced doctors yet. Uh, but she has done casualty in the bill. So, no, kind of. Marvellous. Mm. Laura Donnelly. Mm. I, 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 I almost hate to say this, but it just, I just found it very difficult for my brain. Famously, I'm not very good at telling the difference between white women with brown hair. But I really <laughs> kept looking at her and seeing Anne Hathaway. And I know that, that she's not the same. I know they look different, but They're my brain similar. just wanted to put Anne Hathaway there a lot. And I I was I found myself having weird conversations with myself, like, just stop, stop. She's not there. Stop trying to see Anne Hathaway here. That won't <laughs> you can just see the woman in front of you. No, my brain was like, Oh, it's just like all the other things that Anne Hathaway's in. Like, who knew we'd seen so many things She's with Anne Hathaway? Definitely not married to Shakespeare, so who <laughs> <laughs> um, Exactly. <laughs> I'm assuming you haven't watched The Nevers. Mm. No. Mm. Which, hmm, probably the right choice. But, um, <laughs> I don't know. It was all right. Oh, oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting going in interesting places. But, you know, don't think they're going to make any more. I know, and... it's coming back in February. Mm. Don't make faces like that at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, come, children. Come. But it absolutely leans into that she has done all this training as sort of action lead and is therefore the right cast. And it's, it's the same way, Bu- uh, not Buffy, I was about to say Buffy, Sarah Michelle Gellar got cast in very similar sorts of roles for a good, good couple of years there. Because mm. yes, why not? I, I'm going to say I really did like her. I mean, by the time mm. I watched it the second time and managed to put Anne Hathaway down, I <laughs> found it slightly easier, um, but only slightly. Um, but I, I really did like her and, you know, I, I like that this kind of adhered to sort of the last two in, last two out rule of horror. I thought that was quite quite nicely set up. But, um, you know, the point of this podcast is that we talk about maybe what's coming. And I feel like the special have more of maybe what's coming. There's, there seems more potential 
brought up by this in terms of connections that these characters have in the comics than I think anything we've seen for a really long time. And um, Elsa in the comics is a part of so many people's stories, mm. so could possibly go in so many mm. um, other directions. I don't know. Did anyone else look this up? No. No, I did see that there was there is something <laughs> Legion, something that is kind of like a monster thing. Uh, that that Yeah, there are a couple of... Yeah. Monster things. But and obviously we've got man thing. Ed, yeah. That but I Elsa, let Elsa's, believe is a big thing. Yes. Definitely a big thing. But yeah, Elsa's Elsa's path crosses extensively with the Black Knight. Um so possible there. Um It's uh, interesting because yeah. they didn't actually say when this was set, but mm. they talk about sushi at the end, so I'm guessing relatively modern day. Yeah. I would, I would say, relatively. So we could see so. them crossing over with Kit Harrington's Black Knight, or um, mm-hmm. well, we don't know when Blade's going to be set. But do you, do you, do you think the Marvel maybe want to set up a second franchise, effectively, in, in the is, same way they have in the yeah. comics? Do, do they want to have a, you know, over on one side you've got this sort of horror, slightly darker, maybe you have some crossovers between them, but the films almost alternate. I think they might have some some bridging characters. So it's interesting because the, the mm. stories that she's closer to are Blade, Deadpool, and Black Knight, okay. and I think we already see them being from slightly. And then there's um, oh the Midnight Suns, which includes mm. Morbius as well. Um, um, who's the flamey headed one? Johnny Blaze. Yeah. Ghost Rider. Yes. yes. Ghost Rider. Yes. Ghost Rider. That, yep. So all of that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's quite possible, and there's also Moon Knight in the mix there. Mm-hmm. But then, as we talked about back mm-hmm. when that show was on, he's in everyone's story, so mm-hmm. it's quite possible you get someone like the Moon Knight character as a bridge between possibly the Avengers and then these other mm-hmm. super groups. And then at one point they can come together and fight each other. <laughs> I, like I said I enjoyed it. I think it'd be really cool to see one of these each Halloween or something like that. And I really did like Elsa. I can't say I'm too desperate for a monsterverse personally. Mm. That's not just because I'm still sore about the demise of the Universal Dark Universe, which I am, because that mummy film was not as bad as people made out. It was actually quite fun. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I just it's not, not necessarily my bag. I suppose. Mm. Um, very happy for it to be out there, you know, for the people it is. But if I was having to select projects, if I had to become Kevin, then. Um, <laughs> then uh, I I think I'd probably want to look in other areas. So speaking of Ted or Man-Thing, mm. um, how, how did you find him as a monster? Do you think he was a sort of reasonable monster? Do you think, is is that the kind of thing that makes you think I'm not that interested in a monster versus monsters because this isn't that interesting? Or um, I thought he was delightful. <laughs> um, and I, I, I liked the whole kind of, just call him Ted, Mm. And and the you know I thought the uh, VFX were were very good as far as you know when he's being a scary monster and then when he relaxes when she says Ted and you can see there's quite a lot of emotion in that face. It's got a little um, flower. Yeah, I, it's I when you prefer- see the little flower and you think, oh, this is a different story. <laughs> I preferred him in black and white. I don't know the mm. the red eyes. I think he looked more real in black and white than mm. which I suppose hides lots of things, doesn't it? Um. So yeah, I enjoyed him, but I'm not burning for the, which is rather, I 
run it considering his powers, but I am not burning for the next man thing, the return mm. of the man thing. How about you, Matthew? Would you like to see man thing again? I, I really enjoyed the way it was used here. Mm. Um, you know, having the the unseen threat and then seeing it and actually learning there's more to this story. Ah. Um, I, I'm not sure we would need to see more, but very useful character to have around and very clearly they've had a lot of success with Groot, so they can do the same stuff here very easily. Mm. So I have have some more details about Comic Man Thing, mm-hmm. mm. um, so listen away now if you don't want to know possibilities. And as we know, the MCU does not necessarily adhere to the law, but it's looking good so far with what we see. So um, Man Thing is, uh, in real life, a, uh, a bioscientist called Theodore Salas, Ted Salas. Yes, in real life, Laura, in history, in 1937, (laughs) Theodore Salas was creating the super. I don't know, making up plates. Anyway, the super serum soldier, soldier serum super thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that Captain America had, that one. He was trying to make more of that, but it went wrong and he turned into a swamp monster. No one learns their lessons, do they? Not Mm. one time. But. One way or another, well, he does turn green, but one Mm. way or another, in at least one comic line, he ends up as the guardian of the nexus of all realities, which is where the Watcher lives. Wow. So he's basically the Watcher's bodyguard, sort of doorkeeper, Mm. which I thought was possibly quite interesting. I like it quite nice. Apparently also somebody, somebody somewhere in an article, I read loads, um, said that there is a statue of him in Sakaar. And I learned all about Sakaar last week, so now I feel like that knowledge is already paying off. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, and again, I read this, I didn't, don't remember it, but I think there's there's a big shot, isn't there, of, um, I think it might be the build, building that mm-hmm. the um, Grandmaster lives in. He's got these heads carved, mm. and one of them's a Hulk, and then one of them apparently is Man-Thing. Which is, again, like, is this before or after that? And what does it mean? Or is it just like mm. a statue? Or is it like honouring mm. a kill? Or When was he on Sakaar? Yeah, and why? And how? So many questions. Mm. Um, but no, I, I also really liked the fact that um, in this particular story, we kind of come in in the middle of, of people's pre-existing story. You know, mm. this, we meet people in the middle of a chapter of... You know, they are main characters in other stories. And I think it did start to feel like, for Elsa as well, I felt like we really were just jumping into the middle of a lot of people's stories. And I actually felt like this was just the right length. But I think that's because I felt like this is one chapter from the middle of a lot of different people's stories. It just happens to be the one where they meet. And I quite like that as a sort of kind of skip to the end almost. It's like this is one complete moment in multiple people's piece of storytelling it's where you know Elsa consolidates her powers it's where um Jack and man thing kind of have one of their adventures and there's a suggestion that they have many other adventures and Mm. you know I just I sort of like that real chapter feel and I feel like actually 50 minutes is is quite nice for that it's nice to see them not say let's make this an hour and a half for the sake of something because they don't need to Mm. It, it felt like it was just about long enough and it did that nice thing as well that a lot of these older films do, which is when it's over, it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and then we had quite a lot of characters in this film, but um, most of them didn't come out the other side. So I feel no. like 
unless anyone has any particular further mention of, of other characters they might like to bring up who didn't make it out, apart from Jack. I, I thought, yeah, Jack we probably ought to talk about in some way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought the other hunters were... I liked the different designs of them. Mm. Um, but other than... Oh, I said his name earlier and now I can't remember. Uh, Javan. We really don't get much from them. They're almost no. sort of slightly more enhanced background characters. Um, so I think I would have liked a bit more. I mean, I don't need to know chapter and verse because, as you were saying, it was interesting. I, I, oh God, Abby, interesting. Um, <laughs> in you know when Elsa came in, it did land very quickly. Okay, I understand who this person is, um, and I, you know, I do have questions. Why does she want the bloodstone? But then Verusa. But then Barusa does actually, you know, ask that question and runs through all the reasons why she might want it. And although we're not given an answer, you're kind of like, well, yeah, one of those seems like a reasonable reason to go for this. And then I liked it in the end, you know, how it was left, that, you know, it was left open that, well, what's she now going to do with this domain that she's now ruling over? Um, particularly as she doesn't appear to want to be a hunter. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I thought I thought some of the characters were served very well, or, or were served well. Um, but yeah, about I, I would like a little bit more on some of the other hunters. They, they just so were they didn't a bit feel disposable. Papery. Yeah, I, I think they, they almost did feel just a little too disposable. I think it mm. attempted to give everyone a moment and to sort of give them bits of, of fighting style or kind of pursuit personality mm. and that kind of thing. But, you know, I suppose, I suppose it's hard to have a cast that large that has to go and, and not <laughs> have it mm. seem... At least mildly try it. But I think they all got to speak, didn't they? So they all got their moment. Yes, I think so. I think. Um, but yeah, that brings us to Jack, uh, played by Gael Garcia Bernal, who mm-hmm. is one of my favourite actors in the world, despite the fact that I've frankly seen him in very few things <laughs> out of the many, many things that he's done. You couldn't get many of them on DVD in Wales in the early 2000s. Uh-huh. It, was, it was difficult. Um, much harder to watch things on the internet. But I, I made a good effort and uh, and I love him very much. It's very nice to see him in the Marvel Universe. And I also just realised he's in Station Eleven, which I've been holding out on. So now I'm maybe going to have to stop holding out on that go and watch that. Um, anyway, Jack Russell, a name which the writer absolutely swears had nothing to do with the dog. He'd never heard of a Jack Russell dog when he created this name. So just by pure chance, he happened on Jack Russell as a it character. He was a man name. dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just by pure chance, he named his werewolf Jack Russell. So, mm-hmm. so there we go. Um, who again? This is quite a good run through various comics, various stories, and here I think we just get a really quite classic werewolf story. I thought quite you know somebody who's lived through their monster life and found ways to work with it and other monsters to support him mm-hmm. in his monsterness and. I really enjoyed the way that it worked with those things. Um, and I, I would be very, very happy to see more of Jack. In a, When we talk about superpowers and superheroes and turning your powers on and off, I feel like the werewolf does have mm. something to contribute. So, your thoughts? I thought he... It's not an actor I'm super familiar with. I recognise the name, but to be honest, I wouldn't necessarily recognise... I'm obviously had the makeup on and everything, but um, I would recognise the name before his face, I think. Um, I thought he did a really good job of very quickly um, injecting warmth into the character mm-hmm. because we're told pretty much from the beginning that he's the monster 
um, in the na- in the narration at the beginning, it, it talks about or oh, if there were a monster amongst these hunters as he comes onto screen. So mm. subtle. Um, but he he injects a lot of humanity and warmth into that, so that you are looking at him as as the human side, um, not oh he's about to mm. werewolf out. <laughs> I don't know transform. Um, so I thought that was good, and I thought chemistry with Elsa was good. I do think I think it's in, it would be interesting to see, though I'm not clamouring for more of it. With what you were saying there about the powers and that, particularly to someone who doesn't want to use his powers because mm. he is, you know, he's out of control and it's it's mm. kind of almost not him, as he says. Um, and I know we had with the Hulk, you know, not wanting to turn. But we're now way past that, and he's got control and what have you. Um, so I think that could be interesting. But then I kind of feel bad for him when he, you know, because he has done this really good job of of um, being incredibly likable in the Jack character. Um, I don't know. I'd want to see him transform that much because it'd be like, oh no. Yeah, I can't see them doing a Professor Werewolf. <laughs> No, 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 type no. Type thing no. with him, although, although that would be an interesting take. Mm. It would be a different Discuss. take on the werewolf. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you also have the interesting sort of idea that that there is the dog aspect inside there, and I'm not sure that always comes out as 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 much as it did in this. That was quite interesting mm. to sort of be like, and this is literally an animal. It's not so much like oh, it is like the mystical werewolf and the moon and the mm. like. It wasn't. It wasn't monster, like, um, that sort of intangible, this is evil. It was like, I'm just a feral dog. Yeah. <laughs> and you can kind of point me in one direction, and if I have a sense of... Like, I really like the kind of scent orientation thing, and yeah. the way that he would just kind of scratch behind his ear like a dog <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I thought that was just, like, really nice little bits of... This is actually just a man and an animal here, rather than some kind of good and evil. They didn't play it like good and evil, which is also mm. quite an interesting take when you're sort of considering something, the horror of something. Mm. Actually, maybe it's just enough to be both one thing and another in this way, rather than torn between like the power of good and evil. Because I'm not super familiar with what, what I mean, obviously I know what werewolves are meant <laughs> to be, but I, I haven't watched a lot of werewolf things or read a lot of werewolf things. So is it very traditional to have the reluctant werewolf. I always felt like Oz was quite a good example yeah. of a lot so, of werewolf tropes, really. So of Oz and then whoever it was in Harry Potter. Yeah, David Dolan's. <laughs> Remus. Yeah. Remus Lupin. Yeah. Okay, I should have remembered that. Mm, um, American werewolf yeah. in London. <laughs> so is it, the... Uh, ever a tradition of just the werewolf being the baddie or is it always this sort of um, cursed person who's very upset about the situation I think there's an often kind of get the werewolf sort of thing and the idea that like the werewolf is inherently evil and therefore I, I feel like one of the things that Buffy really lent into is trying to sort of separate the person and the wolf mm. more. I always feel in some of the kind of other vampire things, it's like the werewolf is sort of taking over the person. Um, like, more, almost more like the vampire story. Like, you're just increasingly more. And the fact that you end up having to kill people because you're a wolf and you can't help yourself. 
Yeah. So, so it is, it is more yeah. that kind of, oh it's my a God, there's awful things happening to me. You. Not, yeah, yeah, I get to become a werewolf and kill some people soon. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay, cool. I think, I think that's, I mean, yeah, Matthew, any thoughts? <clears throat> I'm thinking through werewolves in pop culture. Mm. It's very difficult because then I get stuck on Michael J. Fox and yes, everything that comes with that. Um, the <laughs> Bosco, Laura, you have seen Teen Wolf, right? I have an awareness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Spe- Christmas special is going to be Teen Wolf. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, in the modern times, Twilight is the obvious thing to lean into, and they mm. do that very... I can't believe I forgot about Twilight. Well, but, so but uh, you know, they do that very much, and, and I feel mm. like that's now become the archetype for it of it's actually living with it. Mm. So you stick to other people who have the same thing. You know, Underworld does this as well. It's it's people who have the same mm. affliction, curse. Lycanthropy. Lycanthropy, mm. absolutely. Yep. Um, I, I can't say that I've seen too many films where the, it is just they're an evil person and it's yeah. a thing, unless it's absolutely a monster thing. So, mm. See, you have my J. Fox. I just have uh, werewolves, not swearwolves. Well, yeah, that was that was going to be the other the other reference, because mm-hmm. um, again, it's about sort of learning to live with it and figuring yeah. it out, which which stems from Abby, everything you were saying about Buffy, and then even more so, Angel doing a lot about how you deal with uh, werewolves. Yeah, I didn't watch all of Angel. <laughs> ah, in the final season, there was a oh. small ongoing plot with the werewolf. And obviously, Supernatural has a, a fair few werewolf episodes throughout as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Jack's werewolfness is that he is not, in the comics anyway, bitten by a wolf. He is cursed by the Darkhold. And Ooh. this, of course, because the Darkhold has very specific curses drawn from pop culture across the, the ages. Um, you know, it's really just a big Bible of pop culture in there. And you get randomly afflicted with <laughs> different tropes. Um, but so this as, was well, before. You were asking about when this was, yeah. and is it before or after Wonder? Well, I mean, he had to be afflicted before, I suppose. But this this film does it does it take place? Yeah, but I, I suppose he had to have been afflicted with the curse. But this is assuming still, that. Yeah, if you destroy the Darkhold, does that get rid of all the curses? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, if anyone's wondering what we're talking about. It's uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness as uh, Wanda destroys the Darkhold in this reality and all realities. Mm. Wasn't the point of destroying it because she was stopping something happening? She was stopping anyone using it in the way that she had used it, with uh, the dream walking okay. and all that kind of stuff. Okay. But it could also be that, yeah. But then, mm. yeah, so is the thing, does, would that release Jack or is it just that there won't be any new ones? And. I think it's sort of nice that that question is not even posed by the special. This is yeah. absolutely something <laughs> that we're adding into it. But, um, I, but I mean, I like yeah, it's, it, it's our constant thing to want to fill in all the questions. For me, the mm. question was, how did they capture Ted? Um, would have been quite interesting if he is so, you know, monstrous and so on. Uh, what's the backstory of that? Maybe the blood, bloodstone, maybe. Mm. So, well good wife and I were discussing this and we were wondering if from, from the way that Jack and Ted are discussing this, it almost sounds like they have a bit of a racket going in a way. Like they have this kind of arrangement that, you know, he'll be hunted <laughs> and Jack will win and it will all be fine. And 
Peg's rationale for this was that there's the, the bit where um, where she talks about how the bloodstone is going to hurt the creature. It's going to be really painful. There's a big kind of close up, and he looks really like, oh no, I didn't realize I didn't realize that was going to happen. Like I don't want him, I don't want him to be in pain. Yeah. Mm. Um, as if as if this wasn't the thing. Because I just I definitely got the feeling that they'd done this before, in some form. <laughs> And uh, when they talk about how many hunts and kills he's achieved, I wondered if how many of those were actual kills and how some of them were just Ted going, I'm dead. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's really interesting. I hadn't looked at it that way at all. Yeah, I just yeah. assumed he was lying. And one of my questions was, oh, I, I mean, who is he pretending to be? I assume there must be some big name attached that he was going under. Because I don't think you can just rock up and say, well, I've mm. killed over 100 people. Let me come in and compete for the Bloodstone. Well, 100 mm. monsters. Um, I had actually... That's a really interesting reading because I just looked at it that um, at some point Jack says to Ted, uh, yeah, you will say that, but then you're careless and I have to come and help you. So mm. I just took it that, you know, he'd got too close or wandered off or something. And then Jack was having to come and rescue him. And that's really interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like it. And I kind of wished it was in the text. <laughs> it would have made me really enjoy it even more. But I think yeah, their I think closeness is their closeness is sufficient that you. Can, I don't know if I just have fandom practice, but I think you can add <laughs> layers where you want to. You, you, I think anytime there's kind of this this bond and shenanigans in the past, mm. you can you can always add those layers. I thought one of the one of the speaking of kind of hunters and how did they find them and where did they get them in the narrator's spiel at the beginning, um, he points out that the hunters are strangers until this night. Yeah, they and, all had masks on. Yeah. And I thought that was just an interesting thing to say. I mean, it, it, it is how you begin these sorts of things, isn't it? And it sort of establishes, I suppose, that none of them have mm. probably met each other, but perhaps they all have their own notoriety. But mm. Which allows Jack to then come in and, and pose mm. as somebody, I guess. Was there a bit later on where they rock up in masks when they've got him in the cage? Yeah. When mm. they're in their room, and then they take then they take them all off straight away, and it's the same people who were there earlier. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like. And Bruce has some great eye makeup going. Yeah, on. Th- mm. this is a thing that the MCU is now doing of like people put a mask or a hat or something on for a really short time. I'm thinking of <laughs> Zemo in yes, mm. the Winter yeah, Soldier with his like that I'm going to wear my. People were talking about beforehand that oh we're going to see the mask and it's on for like thirty seconds. <laughs> And you know, you know Iron Man and and all that who go around the thing and then just take it off every opportunity Moonlight. they get. <laughs> yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. Brief masks. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, speaking of masks, um, a mention for for the werewolf being um, prosthetics rather than mm. CGI. Mm. And look, Marvel doesn't it look better? <laughs> doesn't it look? I mean, specific and in genre. Yeah, but mm. I I thought it it just allowed it to be, yeah, much more tangible, and they could do much more with the filming of it because you weren't waiting for people to animate mm. it. I just I I thought it looked good. It was just it was soothing in a way <laughs> to see some werewolf prosthetics for a bit. They always look like that. And I I, I mean we, we I think it needs the caveat that yes, it looked good. Because it's leaning into the the trope of how yeah. wolf transformations happen, and I don't think there are pretty much any good werewolf transformations in Bob Goldberg. <laughs> That's part of the point of it. It's really difficult to do. 
so Actually, fine. Actually, the Twilight ones aren't bad. Well, they they just did it in a leap. It was excellent. It was like, right, yeah. done. None of this, you know, three-minute prolonged, let's mm. watch the nose extender <laughs> and stuff. Um, I have to say, any werewolf costume or, or depiction looks amazing compared to the first one in Buffy. Yeah, which true. is appalling. <laughs> it does look like a gorilla shelf. suit, or yeah. yeah, that they put a snout on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I agree. For this, I thought it looked fantastic. It, it really uh, lent in to mm. the um, the style that they were going for, and also the work very well because it was in black and white and shadow, and so you weren't looking at it directly too much. Mm. Um, and he's obviously he's jumping about and everything. Um, I thought the transformation was fantastic. Because again, they would have had to do CGI if if we we were shown the transformation, and I think it really again with my very limited knowledge of these kind of films, but the fact that they because back then they couldn't do those kind of things. I think the idea of lots of things off screen, um, but the way that they focused in on Elsa's reactions, and then the shadow in the background showing us the transformation, mm-hmm. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, and I think a lot, I wouldn't say any of this was scary, but a lot spookier than had we watched a CGI or, you know, a, a Jack mm. CGI himself into the prosthetics guy. Mm. Um, and I thought that, you know, she really, really sold that. I really bought her fear. Even though yeah. from a Michael Giacchino interview, Laura Donnelly can walk through those bars very easily. It- yeah. They came on to set all ready to film <laughs> and she literally walked up and turned sideways and walked through the bars and he had a Love heart it. attack because he thought, oh my God, we're going to have to rebuild the set. But I think they kind of, they made it work. I, I thought that's how she was going to get out mm. and it was just going to be a kind of gag about it. Like, that would have been fine. Mm. <laughs> I think that would have worked. Mm. We've talked in the past about appropriateness and who it is mm-hmm. aimed for and i do think this is aimed for a slightly younger audience but i want was interested in your thoughts on it obviously laura particularly as someone who uh will engage with it more when it's aimed at a less scared audience any less less I'm traditional horror audience <laughs> <laughs> someone who doesn't something engage with infants. horror things normally that's yeah. what laura, laura yeah. needs something for infants i'm glad you you um cabbage that with the scariness of the the topic, yeah, not just absolutely. generally. No, um, if it's really simple, it's for you. So yeah, can yeah, you, super uh, simple. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like I said, uh, it wasn't scary. I, I thought it was quite am- atmospheric, but not not sort of tense. But just I just thought they did a very good um, job building the world. I'm not sure I would have been quite as happy with it if it had been in color, because oh. of the gore. Uh, as far as the scariness side of things, mm-hmm. um, that's not really scary. That's just more. Ugh, can't graphic don't mm. want to look at it uh, mm. particularly when it starts like splashing on the lens mm-hmm. um even in black and white it had a bit of a Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> which was an exact uh, representation of the noise i made at the time mm-hmm. um but yeah because didn't this get like a tvma or something isn't it the first first marvel tv series to get something that isn't a no, okay, interesting. I think it's maybe like a fifteen equivalent. I think mm. it got like a TV fifteen in Australia, which I think is a bit hefty, really, given mm. other stuff. 
Because and and in some ways it was you had the gore with like the ripping of the limbs and the splashing of the blood on the lens. Hmm. But then also I was watching this a few times when someone like gets their throat slit and there's very little. It's almost back to kind of it was one of the Captain Americas I think where someone gets their throat slit and it just there is no blood at all. Right. Okay. Um, well, they said because it's it's in black and white they could get away with significantly more yeah. gore, but still not unlimited. Mm. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I think there's that element. But also, I think because of the style of it, I really wasn't expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be along the lines of, you know, horror, hammer horror. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hammer horror, uh, which, as far as I'm aware, is not actually super scary to us now. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a, a nice note about kind of expectations from the style of it. And I will say this was a lot nicer, a lot sweeter, and a lot more delightful than i was expecting i just hmm. thought the end where the monster has brought a suitcase of clothes and they're gonna go and have sushi and i was just like did i write this this is this is like Gamma de toro's friends with the monster but like at a fresh <laughs> level this is just joyous what a, what a wonderful thing um and just kind of sort of fin- finishing up perhaps hmm. um hmm. as people have takeaways and things to get to um <laughs> Uh, Michael Giacchino, uh, obviously a noted composer. Mm-hmm. Um, I did ask before if anyone uh, could think of other things where well-known composers were also directors. Matthew, you came up with... Ah, not a composer who's director, but where the director composed his own music was John Carpenter's Halloween. Perhaps perhaps the second most famous thing from that, other than The Killer, is the score. Exactly. Mm. And also kind of very in-genre as well. So... Yeah, I, I wasn't aware that Michael Giacchino was um, sort of motioned toward directing things, mm. but after this, apparently there have been many calls for him to be um, drafted into Blade, a film currently without director, mm. which I thought was... I mean, Blade, is, is as we know it, has certain stylistic choices, and yeah. clearly yeah. a man capable of stylistics. I like this. You know, I, I was mm. particularly yeah. going into it knowing that, you know, it was someone who hasn't done a huge amount of directing. Mm. I um I thought it, it looked great. Mm-hmm. Blade is such a big thing though that that, mm. that feels like I'd like to the story side it needs yeah, mm. it needs somebody. Mm. You know, perhaps bringing me on one of the T V shows to do, you know, a few episodes or Absolutely. or what have you. But mm. uh, but yeah. But I'm I'm also interested, there's now been a bit of talk of other special presentations going mm. forward uh, mm. i now can't remember any of them the but, guardians um, holiday episode yeah which we've known about that for a while but i think there's, there's been talk of some of the tv programs that we're we are expecting might now actually become um these okay. shorter specials mm. uh, and i think it's a great way to you know to bring in and, and test perhaps some characters um sort of the that they Doctor can't Who quite model. justify Perhaps. Yeah, see, a, a, see a comics one shot model. Mm. You know, mm. just do a, a really accessible single story, one off, do the yeah. vision and wonder go on a date mm. Valentine special. Don't don't tell be, us what oh, it is. Don't just you I know, just that. do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and I hope if anything, it it's been a lot of fun watching this comparatively small thing that has so so much possibility just by what it does and doesn't involve mm. but also is a complete thing in and of itself and just works with what it mm. gives you it doesn't 
it doesn't close any doors and it doesn't have to open any either. And it's just nice to have mm -hmm. something that feels so possible, I think, in the Marvel television universe. Mm. Mm. Um, any any closing points from anyone? No closing points from anyone. And God, I, had so, I had so many other bits, so many little pieces. But you know what? There are lots of good articles on the internet if you want to uh, <laughs> enjoy all of the many tiny details in this really detailed, I felt really well thought out piece of Marvel television. Well done, Marvel. Oh. <laughs> really, I, I accept my Halloween gift gratefully. Thank you so much. Thank you for discussing this with me and humouring me and uh, helping me, as always, get more out of something I can actually remember the plot to. It's <laughs> been a pleasure to finally feel like I know a thing about a thing. Um, Matthew, where can we find you? I'm on Twitter at Matthew Vos. And Laura, where can we find you? I'm on Twitter at... <laughs> Is that Matthew Vos? <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Laura Geeks Out. And you can follow us at Eloquent Gushing and hashtag marvellous pod we'll be back soon with more things I can't remember what those things are but we'll be back with them <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to find a, a joke to go out on that was as good as I'll be rotting for you which I thought was a joke you know almost at Matthew standards but I don't have one so I'll just remind you that that joke was in this show I'll be rotting for you marvellous marvellous